Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Lori. We've always thought that the most compelling story strikes the perfect balance between an honest look at the mess of life and the humor that can be found in the mess. To be perfectly honest, we don't really know how to live life without both the humor and the authenticity. Our podcast might be a little bit of whiplash at times. We can spin from hard and deep to humor and laughing on a dime. The hard will be really hard and the truths we share are the ugliest of humanity. We don't intend to make it seem like it's all fine or to pretty up the pain, but we also know that the joy we found is all the more profound because of the pain. So we hope you can stick with us through the ugly because there will also be joy and hope and humor. Welcome to the ugly truth about the girl next door. Hi, welcome back to our podcast, The Ugly Truth About the Girl Next Door. I'm Kate. And I'm Lori. I feel like I'm always laughing after I do the intro because it's usually our like fourth or fifth take. And (laughs) so I'm always kind of (laughs) like, hi, welcome back. We survived. (laughs) We actually did it. We finally got We got it to play. Uh, Uh, Anyways, yes, welcome back. Um, Ow. Silas oh, is out of control today, um, uh, which is part of why it takes us how many t- tries to get started because Silas has to sniff my eyelashes <laughs> and you usually have to sniff the microphone. That's also true. <laughs> I don't know why that's true. It has a chemical uh, smell. Okay. Um, so you've said. Okay. okay. So squirrels in traffic today. <sighs> um, lots of things have been happening uh, the last week two weeks i guess right which is why you know we said last time we were going to talk about the justice question um and you know as often happens to us the things that have happened have sort of made us shift what our topic is for today um so today we are actually going to unpack a little bit about the difference between abuse that happens in a caregiver or parent-child relationship and abuse that happens externally because some stuff that has kind of been percolating in the past week or couple weeks kind of brought it, that to our attention as something that maybe we really need to make sure people understand the impact and the difference in the impact. So um, that's what we're going to talk about today. What does that look like? And, you know, how does that sort of manifest yeah. for survivors? Um, and how does that affect how people who are going to show up for survivors, the ways, mm-hmm. the needs that exist out there? Yeah. So, so I guess the first thing to uh, to say about abuse in a caregiver relationship is that to remember that it's chronic, right? When something happens, you know, a child experiences a car accident or, you know, an abuse experience happens outside the home somewhere else at school, um, on the playground, at, at a friend's house, at church, right? But it's not from a parent, Um it's not the same thing as living with your abusers, which, you know, Katie yeah. talked about. No, yeah, it is. It's it's never safe. Um, there's, there's abuse happening in all facets of life. So it's not just, you know, it is the sexual abuse. It is the trafficking. It is the, you know, commercial exploitation. It is all of that. And it's when it's a caregiver, it's it's chronic because there's no place that's safe. Um you know, it was emotional abuse when my mother couldn't look at me and threw paper towels at me in the bathroom when I was bleeding. It is neglect when I uh, didn't have my needs met because um, I didn't do it right or whatever. It was also neglect when your mother failed to care for you when you were not okay. Right. Um, you know, it, it's not. it's not just, again, not to minimize any other trauma, but it's not 
the same situation as, yeah, even even when it's years of abuse at the hands of somebody outside the home. When it's in your home, there is no place. It's a constant walking on eggshells. It's a constant state of, um, you know, that fight, flight, freeze, fallen thing. It's it's a constant state of figuring it out and, and reading the room and learning how to survive. It's a constant survival mode. And um, constantly being in a space where you are being expected to pretend like it's not bad when it is. Oh, my God. There's gosh, nowhere to yeah. rest. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because even places that were potentially safe, like school, there is that always in the back of my head. OK, I have to do it right. I have to be a certain way. I have to look a certain way, because if I don't, then this teacher is going to call my mom and my mom. Then I'm going to be in trouble and abuse at home. So it's it's constant. There is no. You know, it's a constant state of survival. So I want to just highlight, because what that means is, you know, if a child is not being abused by the caregiver, when the teacher calls home to say, hey, there's something up with Susie, and mom goes to Susie to say, hey, sweetie, I hear, like, you're having a hard time at school. Can we talk about that? That feels like help. Mm -hmm. You're right. No. My biggest fear, uh, biggest fear, I'm not sure that that's a great word, but one of my biggest fears was, please don't call my parents. Like, that was always my... um, because that was it would just make it so much worse. You know, if I faltered in any way in any area of school, of life, of youth group, of anywhere, the first thing would be a phone call home. And then that would just lead to more abuse, to worse abuse that was happening. Um, so, yeah, it was it's so different than, like you said, if, you know. Right. Also, though, why did you use the name Susie? That's like, are, how old are you? Like, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Are people named Susie anymore? (laughs) Probably not. If you are, I'm so sorry. It's a cute name, but Lori is just, you know. Dating myself. Yeah, you you. really are. (laughs) Brooklyn. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) So all the people of my generation are probably remembering all the like early reader books from when we were Mm. being taught how to read. (laughs) I'm trying to think. Susie and Johnny went up the hill. Yeah. My mother-in-law has like paper dolls that might be like Uh. Susie something or other. I don't know. I'll have to ask her. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Squirrels in traffic. <laughs> Squirrels in traffic. We really are today. Um, so while you were talking, I was thinking about um, a topic that is front in my brain these days, which is that my daughter got a puppy. And <laughs> Archie is his name, and he's the cutest little fluffball, minus Silas, of course. Um, <laughs> but we were talking yesterday because Archie had his first vet appointment yesterday, and he wanted to be near to Natalie because it was a scary new environment. And the truth is that one of the hallmarks of safe, secure attachment is seeking to be near to your attachment person. Mm -hmm. So when you're being abused by your caregiver, you cannot seek nearness with your caregiver and feel safe. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there is no safe place. Right. And that's overwhelming and devastating for a child. Right. Um, Another issue in when you're being abused in a caregiver relationship, and we've sort of talked about this before, but is that parents are the mirror that kids look into to decide who they are. Um, And when a child can look at their caregiver and interact with their caregiver and the message they get is, you are delightful and I find you to be someone that I care about and want to know and I want to show up for you and all the things, then children identify themselves that way. But what happens when the caregiver the child looks into that mirror and sees all the things that unfortunately Kate and other children who have been abused by their caregiver see, which is you're disgusting and you're bad and yeah. you're all the things. You're a problem. You're a problem. Um, 
yeah, there is no. Uh, so my experience, I feel like, was I was only um, accepted by my parents as church me, right? When I finally became the shell of a human being uh, that did all the right things and, you know, was finally not dramatic and finally not talking about it and finally could put it in a box, then I was I was accepted. Then my mom wanted to, you know, mm. go places with me. And um, So when people wonder, how is it, Kate, that you had the relationship you had with your mom during those middle years mm-hmm. when... That's how. That's how, right? Because I put it all away, and then finally, I was something, something that she could accept, and was yeah. Um, but I also think that the, you know, before that, there was like the clingingness, right? Like people would also say that I was super close with my parents because I was very clingy to them. Um, but again, that's different than feeling a secure attachment. Like Archie wants to be close to Natalie because he feels safe around Natalie. I needed to be close to my parents because I I was too afraid to do it wrong. Because if I was anything, I had to literally be following in lockstep with them to make sure that the story stayed the same, to make sure that what they were saying to the doctor, I was also saying to the doctor to make sure that I wasn't going to do it wrong because that led to complete devastation um it was easier for you to be near and pick up on the subtle indicators that you needed to tweak what you were doing so that you didn't do it wrong right right yes and so that is a a reality of attachment we're going to talk about that in more detail in a minute but that that whole thing is a hallmark of an insecure attachment um but i think part of what's devastating about when a child is abused in a caregiver relationship is also that parents are the window kids look through to see the world so Mm. it's not like a child is going to say oh well this is who i am according to my parents or this is who uh, how how it is right here in my home kids experience their parent-child relationship as a reflection of what they can expect in the world at large. And -hmm. therefore, it's devastating because if in your home you're treated as less than a person, then you tend to go out into the world and, well, you're not surprised when that happens to you. Right. Again, in my situation, there was a whole narrative that went with it too. So when the teacher called home and said, Kate's not doing well or there's something off or whatever – my mom would say, oh, she's dramatic, right? And then the teacher would have that Mm -hmm. in the back of their head when they were then interacting with me. So not only were they the window in which I saw the world based on how they they treated me, but also they made sure that out in the world I was treated that way as well because they they made sure to kind of leak that narrative all the way through. I mean, so many people, so many people have come to me through the podcast and said – I did hear that narrative and I'm, I'm like so sick to myself thinking about the fact that I just thought that, like that I just let that be. Just bought it. Yeah. I bought, I just it, bought and it and acted like it was true yes. just because they said so. Yep. And uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely. Not only was it, that was the way it was at home. And so of course I should expect that, but then it actually happened in the world. So, right. so um, that it became shocking when it wasn't that. And unsafe when it wasn't that, like really untrusting and like, but then there was this like, you know, uh, like 
this hole that was so empty, barren, dry, what's another adjective, you know? And so somebody would put a drop of water in it and it was like life, like life giving, but terrifying. So like, yeah, it was a really, what an impossible spot for you to be in. Like a person in the desert, desperate for water, but somebody offers you water and you're not sure if it's poison or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ugh. Yeah. So awful. So all of that stuff, you know, when your caregiver is the person who is not a safe person to you, um, it's well understood at this point that that leads into some attachment challenges. Like it leads to a child having difficulty figuring out how and when and if even to try to have secure, connected relationships. Um, and therefore it can look like clinging, like mm -hmm. what you were saying before about that people who were observing you during those middle years interacting with your mom would have considered that to be a secure attachment, but that is actually a misunderstanding of what it actually means to have yeah. a secure attachment. A securely attached child um, is able to venture forth in adulthood and be bold and confident and live their life. They're not overly insecurely attached. So mm -hmm. um, what happens is a, a child who is securely attached seeks nearness with their parent when they're young and they are feeling uncertain about a situation. That's what it looks like when it's healthy. And from that space, they develop an internal ability to regulate themselves. And so they can go out into the world without needing to be right smack next to their parent when they become an adult. They can do their life. A child who does not get their needs met in their childhood, insecure attachment looks like a couple of things. It can look like an avoidance of of being near with a parent and that ends up looking like dismissiveness in adulthood. So an avoidant child is living with a parent who is consistently not available. So the child just kind of doesn't bother trying to seek nearness to their parent anymore when the parent is unavailable. Um, and that kid tends to grow up and be dismissive of relationships. Like they care more about things than people and kind of go through their life. Um, a child though, who has a parent who sometimes shows up and provides for what they need and sometimes doesn't, learns to be um, ambivalent, which means that kid tends up being preoccupied. So that's a kid who is constantly trying to stay in their parents' awareness, tr mm -hmm. constantly trying to do whatever they have to do to stay near. Um, and, uh-oh, Silas doesn't like that the, the wind. wind just blew. <laughs> I didn't like it either. <laughs> Did you see me jump? <laughs> Kate and Silas both had a reaction to the wind. Yeah. The, the house creaked. Yeah. <laughs> so the more extreme of that is where a parent is both the terrifying one and also the caregiver or supposed to be the caregiver. Um, that leads to a fearful person who tends to be very unpredictable and still very isolated. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important that we just at least from a high level understand that insecure attachments look different than perhaps we would think that they would. A child who is securely attached does not grow up to be a person who needs to be constantly near their parent. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you were trying to be near to your mother because you felt good about that. No, mm -mm. no. I'm thinking about like college, like a time when you should be kind of like moving on, like not moving on, but moving into your own self and into your own space. And again, from the outside, it would look like I was just super duper close with my mom because I talked to her on the phone every day. But the reality of that was I talked to her on the phone every day because really bad things were happening. And I had to make sure again, that I was staying in lockstep with 
them and with her and with my dad and making sure that I knew what was expected. And even if it was like unsaid said kind of thing, Mm -hmm. um, I had to make sure that I was doing it right. And that they knew you were doing it right. And that they knew I was doing it right. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also think, I mean, literally I have like hospital record and again, you know, I'm sure if Natalie had to go to the hospital in college, she would have called you. You would hope. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, but this is different. This is not that this is like, I can't even let anybody touch me, see me like help me at all without talking to my dad. And my dad is telling me to sign out of the hospital AMA and to leave because, um, it's not safe to be there. It's not safe for, he's not there to say whatever. Right. Exactly. Um, and that's actually, I have hospital paperwork that shows that from Lynchburg that I, uh, went to the hospital after an assault. And, um, it says right on there, like she's on the phone with her parents and is leaving against medical advice. Um, so yeah, it would look from the outside, like she's really close with them, but the reality is so different. Um, right. There's a world of difference between I, I call my parents or I seek to be near them because I feel better, more secure when I'm near them versus I seek to be near my parents because I got to figure out what I'm supposed to say. Yeah. And I don't want them mad at me. Right. Right. Because there is not a world in which separation is safer. It seems like it should be, but until it was full separation, Mm -hmm. like no contact, complete separation, it was so dangerous and so not safe. That's a really important point that I don't know that we have fully unpacked here. That idea of how devastating it is for a kid, young adult, teenager to even entertain the possibility of complete and total separation from a parent. And frankly, the system does not support that. Honestly, in the foster care adoption world, it is well understood that no matter how toxic a parent is, the push is still for reunification. The push is still for open adoption. The push is still for some form of connectedness. And there are all kinds of reasons for that makes sense. But from a kid's perspective, it's both terrifying because no kid really ultimately feels like they want to be completely separated from their parent. But you can't really stay half in and half out where your parent is that abusive. No. And honestly, even as an adult, like just a few years ago, going no contact with my parents, I was married. I had three kids, a house. I didn't live with them. I wasn't financially, you know, supported by them anymore. And it was still terrifying. It was still this feeling of like, I'm just out here now. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen because all of these really bad people essentially want me dead or super, super hurt. And my dad is kind of the gatekeeper. And so if I go no contact now, what? Right. Um, and knowing I can't live in that middle space, once we had that meeting and once we went no contact, there was no going back because that is even more unsafe. That is the disclosure in seventh grade where I try to get help and I name him. And now my life is absolutely horrendously hurt. Um, that is the disclosure and right. There is no middle it's, but it's terrifying because you know that there's no middle. So after that meeting with them, I knew like there is no going back. There is, you know, and again, David Drake at the chapel being like, well, reconciliation is the goal. That was a terrifying thing for me because reconciliation meant going back. And I knew that I couldn't do that. 
Um, well, because reconcil- reconciliation and going back meant having to now pay some price. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, not even, not even an option. But anybody who's lived through that or can even imagine that understands that it's a process typically to go no contact with a parent is a process. You don't typically just be like, oh, today's the day where um, this is the last conversation I'm ever going to have. Right. Yeah. I don't think I really, I could feel it like in my literal bones (laughs) that I knew I couldn't go, I couldn't ever go back from this meeting. Um, but I didn't wake up that morning assuming that that's how that was going to go. Um, I, yeah, it's definitely a process and it took so much time and work and energy to get to a place of feeling like that was okay, that it was going to be okay. Um, being no contact. So yeah, it took a long time and it still isn't right. I mean, I'm, we're still like the whole, what's going to happen. What's their next move? What are they, what's the next threat? What's the next thing? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that ever goes away until they go away. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it, it's, we're still, I mean, definitely farther along in that, but I, it's, yeah, every day it's a reality of all the things, all the things. Yeah. yeah. So there's also that whole, you know, you said flight, fight, freeze, fawn response. So, you know, we understand that when anybody is in a situation that makes them frightened, um, those are the responses. That's a brain science thing. The amygdala kicks off, decides if it's an emergency. If it is, one of those four things happens. Flight, avoidance, literal running away, shutting down, you know, ignoring it, avoidance. Um, fight, oppositional, irritable, literally fighting, punching people. That's a response to ter- terror. Freeze looks like shutdown right? I've had an awful lot of parents who think their kid is being oppositional and refusing to answer them when in reality the child is in a freeze response. Fawn is a a relatively new addition to this category. Fawn represents the being overly charming. Like I'm going to de-escalate the situation by being church me, Mm -hmm. by being what people want me to be. Um, But those are the responses that come from being frightened, not from relationship. And again, it's important that we realize that when you're being abused in a caregiver relationship, kids live in a state of flight, fight, freeze, fawn. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's not a place to seek comfort. There's not a way that that can go. Um, there's also no access to appropriate health care or mental health care. Oh God. Yeah. No. Um, there's no access to there's no yeah appropriate <laughs> access. Uh, they would have looked like bad parents if they never took me to the doctor. But when they did take me, it was a very strategic. I was never alone um, with a healthcare provider ever. Um, there was a lot of uh, charm that was laid on. A lot of you know, my dad used his you know I'm a paramedic card mm. a lot because he's a helper right if he's a paramedic then he's a helper in the world so he must Don't be look great here. Mm-hmm. um yeah just a lot of that so not no access really to appropriate health care and mental health care I mean that's not even something we talk about we don't that's no um right so if a child is being abused outside a caregiver relationship and again the teacher calls up the parent to say hey something's going on the parent now seeks out let's go to the pediatrician let's mm-hmm. find a counselor let's do the things but when the parent is the one who is the abuser the child does not get access to those no. things yeah no that's not even a 
No. Mm -mm. No. There, I don't, out of all the things, like, I don't think ever did my mom, even after, like, disclosing at CCA and then, you know, saying, uh, because I couldn't face my dad, then saying it was my uncle, again, which was also true, my mom didn't call the pediatrician and say, like, hey, my daughter was abused by my brother-in-law and, like, what do we do? There was, uh, you know, go back and listen to our episode about the ACBC Christian Counseling Experience. That was the, again, they had to look like they were doing it. They had to, um, you know, they had to be able to say, oh, we're taking her to Christian Counseling. But that was a very strategic, very um, well thought out. Nobody needed to know where or when, you know, that that was, was orchestrated. It was orchestrated. Yeah. And they kept it all. It's private because it's mental health. Right. So we don't really talk about it. And so, again, they had full control over that. Um, so, yeah, no, there was no, no, none of that. <laughs> no. The other thing that happens when a child is abused by a caregiver is that the split, you know, we've talked about the boxes. Um, well, when a child is abused by a caregiver, the the dichotomy between this is my parent who, like, is the person who puts food on the table every day, but this is also the person who hurts me and terrifies me, that creates this fracture in a child that is very different than when a child is being abused outside the caregiver relationship. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally different. And particularly in families where trafficking and this kind of abuse are a thing, the abuse begins so young that boxes are inevitable. It yeah. just has to be. No way can a kid survive that. That is just the way our brain is designed. Um, so it's not that people who are abused outside a caregiver relationship don't end up with boxes. They can. But you are pretty much guaranteed to have boxes when you are abused by your caregiver, for sure. Yeah, there's no option, right? Like right. your brain literally doesn't even give you an option because, again, you cannot physically live in a survival state 24-7, but you are. So the only solution for that is to break it down and put it into boxes. Um, right, and I feel like because survivors are able to do that, and again, because survivors end up sometimes doing the fawn thing, the world can look at that and be like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, they're good now. They're good now, um, which now makes it so that it just feeds the ability and desire for the world to just go on as if nothing happened, mm -hmm. um, which is actually one of the things that happened this week that is that prompted this conversation because um, I was actually asked to attend a meeting somewhere just to provide some mental health information. Um, and while I was there, I found a person who I know has a history of abusing a child. And this person is sitting there in a place um, in a church <laughs> where um, really in a position of leadership that I discovered later where he really had no business being. Mm -hmm. um, and the world apparently has gone on as if the disclosure that was made was never made. Right. And it's horrendous. And there's people in that building who knew that that was his history, but because the victim doesn't, you know, attend there anymore because she moved on with her life and got the help that she needed and is now living, you know, a full life, which is awesome. But now it's like, oh, I guess everyone can just go back to like pretending that that didn't happen because everybody's good now. Right. Right. So when people want to know why do survivors keep talking about their abuse, it's because if they don't, the world is inclined to act like it never happened. Yep.
which is just horrendous. Yeah. Just horrendous. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not because anybody's staying stuck in a victim position. It's because the world wants to forget about it. Right. Yeah. So can we talk about some other environments that, you know, where people go on as if nothing happened? Yeah. I mean, some of the churches, for sure, we keep saying, you know, Cornerstone has, because they engaged and because they did it wrong and it was so blatant, whatever. But there's been a lot of, you know, churches specifically and people that strategically have kind of kept their head down in all of this. And so then they hope that we are just going to go away. Is that the... I think that's what they're hoping. Yeah. Like, so Bible Presbyterian Church on Grand Island, um, Kevin Backus is a named offender. Um, he... Yeah, all things. Um, but because they are like turning in and saying basically like we're not like don't look over here. We are not listening to the podcast. It goes against the church. It goes. We're not against posting God. anything. We're not saying anything. Yeah. So just- like we don't really, you know, we are going to talk about them someday when like life settles down <laughs> and we don't have to do episodes like this anymore. But yeah, I mean, they kind of keep their head down and and hope that we go away. Um, we're not going away. But no. okay. Forest View Church, I talked about Forest View Church where Kate's parents attended for a little bit. Um, We now know that they have been asked to not attend there, Um, but Forest View hasn't really engaged with us, and so they're not continuing. And now, mind you, they eventually did it right, and so there's... Not so they much like of sort of they did it right in this right like adjacent. super like, yeah right adjacent exactly it was mm-hmm. like yeah we like asked them to leave just because of the optics which yes. I'm pretty sure is yeah which is not really the right like okay yay that you asked them to leave but mm-hmm. also like the fact that it was really only because of the optics that's not right and they really wanted to make sure that we knew that they had asked them to leave, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, okay. Right. Because of the optics, because they don't right. want to be the subject no. of a podcast episode. No. Right. Um, Center Point Community Church, which we talked about a while ago, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, in Michael. Depew. It's in Depew, in Depew so New York. Clear. <laughs> we have to say that now because, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so Jeff Hackett, who uh, is was my high school youth pastor at the chapel, um, who is incredibly... Uh, horrendously dismissive, um, very cruel, honestly, the things that he has said about me as a young person and about um, this abuse experience just absolutely doesn't believe, uh, yeah, all the things. So, so messed up. Um, And Michael Rigglesworth, who believed it, and then it was like, oh, but your father-in-law, like, has you know was my high school youth pastor who completely dismissed all the things and missed all these things and could have been someone who helped and blah 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 so it's the step up episode that we're referring to here the episode where we talk about j and m and the j is jeff hackett and m is michael rigglesworth um who's the pastor of the church and jeff by history was the um he was on the elder board and was attending his son-in-law's church that's what we're talking about here but so at the time, Jeff was an elder um, at Center Point Community Church, and we had, you know, said to Michael that this was not appropriate and that he, you know, was not someone who was supportive of survivors. Um, and we found out yesterday that not only did he not remove Jeff as an elder, um, but he's now on staff. He of course, is let's the, give him a promotion. Yes, let's promote him. That's right. Perfect. He like doesn't support survivors, but sure, let's promote him. And doesn't just not support survivors. He actively came mm-hmm. out in a really hateful way. Yeah. And then acted offended when he was called out on it. It's just it's disgusting, honestly. Mm. Um 
yeah, we aren't going to share all the things that were said, but he, it was really, really, really hateful. So yeah, so let's put him in a position where he's preaching mm -hmm. and he's teaching and he's performing marriages and counseling married couples. Counseling. Let's talk let's about that, that because is he a counselor? Is he a licensed yeah. counselor? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um, pretty sure actually from my recollection, his background is in landscaping. So he's not even oh. like, I don't like... I feel like nowadays, though, you can just, like, be a pastor just no. and be like, I'm a pastor. Like, yes. Your brother. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Maybe we'll cut that. Yeah. Nope. Don't cut it. <laughs> it's true. You don't have to do anything. I mean, I could be a pastor, right? I don't want to be, but I'm just saying. I was like, wait, what? No, no, no. <laughs> That's no. a turn. Nope. Don't cut that. Okay. Um, also, Bible Fellowship Church, Cal Vandermeer's Church on Grand Island. Um, again, Cal Vandermeer, named offender, his father, named offender, people who attend that church, named offenders, uh, and yet they kind of, again, turned inward. He, We've heard from people who have left his church that he actively seeks out people to tell them not to listen to the podcast, which I think is just so interesting. Um, you know, it goes against the church. It's all the things. He, you know, has said things to people like, okay, my, uh, my husband's aunt and uncle were in Sam's Club and they saw him in the parking lot and obviously like he he knows who they are and and he knows that they're related to me and he couldn't confront them like in real life but he got in his car and then as he was speeding away yelled out his window I'm praying for you oh <laughs> my gosh and they were just like oh, you're praying you're for praying us? for us like <laughs> okay okay delusional uh, so delusional but again. They've kept their head down. They're hoping we're going to go away. They're hoping that we'll just, everything will just blow over. And, you know, but that is kind of what the world does is right. it, it does just, again, it's like what we talked about before in a previous episode. It's over there. If I don't mm -hmm. have to think about it and face it, I don't want to like, yay, I learned about it and that's horrible, but it's over there. I don't really want to face it right, you know, directly in front of me. So we, we've said this before. One of two things is true. If a person has been accused of some kind of sexual abuse, either you believe that it's true and therefore you exclude this person from serving and set up protective mechanisms to make sure that people are safe or you let it continue on. But that means what? You either don't believe it or you're okay with an abuser being in your flock. Right. There's no middle ground. You don't get to say, like, you're not sure, so we're just going to leave right. things as they are. Or That's... we're going to forgive and forget. It was so many years ago. Yeah. Does it even matter anymore? Right. The They're situation a person. <laughs> I was talking about, yes, was many, many years ago. But that doesn't make a difference. Same mm -hmm. thing with the guy at CCA. No. Like, you don't just get to have a few years between you and something heinous that you did, and everybody's just going to act like it didn't happen. Right. Nope. <sighs> so there have been a few other hard things for you in the past couple of weeks mm -hmm. that have kind of kicked off some of your history that I think it's important to talk about for people to understand that the fallout for the survivor doesn't just ever stop. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Well, first of all, my son had pneumonia recently, and um, I had pneumonia a lot as a kid. Uh for a lot of reasons, one of them being, um, ugh, I don't even, I can't even go there, but, um, it was just very triggering. So to, there were things that happened during your abuse experience that put you in a position where yeah. you were prone to pneumonia. Yeah. We'll leave it there. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of having him get that. Obviously, kids get pneumonia. It happens. Like, it's not. Not the same thing. Right. Not earth shattering. Definitely. He's okay. And that's good. Um, but it's just that whole like triggering feeling like I don't I don't get to just walk away from that reality. And, you know, when he's coughing and he is struggling to breathe, I can feel exactly what it is that he's feeling because I have been there so many times um, and just trying to stay in my adult brain and my parent brain and like help him through it while the rest of me is remembering what that feels like and remembering not having um, good care and not having a loving parent to sit with you on the couch or be up with you at night and say, I'm here. I love right. you. We're going to make sure you're okay. I mean, honestly, even like the reaction of the doctor and of my in-laws and my, you know, being really concerned, it actually a little bit took me off guard because like nobody has ever been concerned when I've had pneumonia. So Everyone saying to me, like, pneumonia is no joke. Like, that's like, is he okay? It was like, yeah, like it, it, I had to really get back in my adult brain and be like, no, it, it is serious. And I do need to take it seriously. And I am taking it seriously. But I am so quick to just like, it's just pneumonia. I, I had pneumonia all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just a really like, again, simple things like that just set off a whole chain of events in my so brain. So it's both the emotional and psychological reality, but even the physical truth of the reality is you are prone to some lung struggles mm-hmm. as a result. Yeah. So you're still living with the physical fallout. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and then again, earlier this week, I, um, <laughs> I haven't been to a dentist in a long time because I had a lot of dental trauma. Um, I had an incident during an abuse experience in which my... It's the one we talked about with Emily. Yeah. With uh, my parents said it was a horseback riding accident, which it's not even consistent with a horseback riding accident. But um, my three front teeth were um, damaged and my face was very... I, you know, had stitches in my whatever. Anyways, um, those... That experience, I... Uh, was taken to a dentist, but the person who performed the root canals was the super sketch. Um, my my dad, they didn't have dental insurance and basically traded the dental work for me. Um, so it was... Okay, a- hold on. <sighs> Let's not just skim past that. Okay. Um... <sighs> I'm sorry, but that's horrible. Yeah. And I don't want people to miss the enormity of what you just said, but yeah. go ahead. Uh, so mm. super traumatic dental experience. Um, not only was this guy like super sketchy and like ended up closing his practice like the week after I had these root canals done, um, but he also was an abuser and an offender in that my dad um, gave him time to abuse me in exchange for doing these root canals. Um, so obviously really, really traumatic. Um, also just a lot of trauma in that there was no like care or concern for me during that time. Like this dentist just like threw a rubber dam in my mouth and did these root canals. Didn't really care that I was in so much pain. I had stitches in my lip and just, yeah, it was a really, yeah, super terrified. And it's my front teeth. So my dad was also spinning out. Um, people don't pay 
uh, for it when your face is fucked up. <laughs> so, so um, really traumatic experience. But this past week, um, so that was 20 years ago, right? I was like in middle school and that happened. And um, this past week I was having some pain in one of the teeth that, um, that was affected by that. And I was able to get in with a really, really good dentist. I'm so thankful that Lori gave me this referral. That, um, I love my dentist. Yeah. They're amazing. Um, they specialize in like anxiety free dental work and kind of doing whatever it is. That, you know, I mean, literally, the, have you experienced this? The dental chair has like massagers in the back of it. Mm, cool. I'm like, is this chair massaging me? She's like, is that okay? I'm like, yeah. Like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Um, they're very kind. So kind. Yeah. So really good experience, but, um, ended up finding out that the tooth is super damaged, is having all kinds of issues, um, because of this traumatic event and is going to cost thousands of dollars in, uh, dental work. And to... still no dental insurance in your world. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it really, it hit me honestly, like it was like the sucker punch kind of feeling of um, when she was, it was already anxiety producing, right? And she did everything she could to eliminate that, to alleviate that. She was so kind. It was a really very good, like the best dental experience you could you have could had. possibly have. Yeah. The, with all of the history, I was still very triggered, very upset. Um, but then she is literally in there looking at my tooth and tells me that this particular thing is happening with it, which they typically see when there's been trauma, like a blunt force trauma to the face. Um, and I don't like I know that like I already knew that that was a possibility, but it hit me like 20 years later, I am still dealing with this like I am still. Paying thousands of dollars, yeah, to have this fixed because of something that happened 20 years ago that wasn't my fault. And um, I said to Lori, like, I honestly would have even felt better about the situation had it been like, girl, you haven't been to the dentist in a long time and, like, you need to get on that. And so now this is why it's happening. Like, because that would have been on me, right? But this is, like, a direct result of what happened and I'm still paying for it. Like, it's just – and that's that's the case across the board, right? There's so many – the physical impact is not something that we've talked a ton about. We have a little bit, um, but it is, it, it's ever present, right? Um, of just managing that because you can't physically go through all of those things and not have some residual effects. Um, so it's, and it's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not fair. Can you talk just a little bit about that internal experience? Yeah, it's just not fair. It's not fair that this, these things are still having to be worked out. It's not fair to me to have to work them out. It's not fair to my husband to have to now, I mean, not that he's complaining, but walk alongside me in having to work these out. It's not fair. Um, that it never goes away. Like I'm already thinking, okay, this one tooth is having a problem. How long until the other two do, right? Like what, I don't know. All three of them had just janky root canals. Yeah, exactly. So it's that it's the, um, every time I get a cough, I'm scared it's going to be pneumonia because uh, that's been my experience. Um, it's just not fair. 
It's not fair. And it's not something that can ever really be fixed. <laughs> so we can cut this butt. I also know that it sets off this whole, I'm so angry. I am so angry that I am still paying the price for their awfulness. And yet I can't be angry right. because I have to keep my wits about me and be careful about how I function. But yeah. I'm so angry, but I can't be, but I am. Mm -hmm. Anger has never been like a safe feeling. And yet, yeah, I'm angry, but I can't be. So, yeah. But now you can. <laughs> mm hmm. <laughs> yeah so you know we just want to help people to have perspective on you know when we talked about foster care and adoption and I said you know uh, uh, foster parents can sometimes say I know my child was neglected but are we really stopping to play the movie of really what that means what the what the real impact is of what kids live through Often not because mm -hmm. it's painful to have to really think about the survivors in your world and really recognize the burden that they're carrying um, is not done when the abuse is over. It's something that continues. And then when people fail to show up, so it's bad enough that people like Kate are having to deal with the long-term impact of this, but then to find out that churches, other systems are just acting as if the abuse never happened and allowing the people who caused this to just go on about their life. It's like a punch in the stomach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like honestly, this <laughs> episode does segue us into kind of that idea of what does justice look like, right? Because yeah, there is so much fallout and yes, it's easy for the world and these churches and these institutions and these places and these abusers to just pretend it didn't happen and move on because they don't have to deal with the physical right. fallout. They don't have to deal with the emotional and mental fallout. Um, it's the survivors that do. And so, right. What does justice look like then? Um, if that's the reality. So <sighs> stay tuned because that's the next subject. Yeah. Unless somebody else does something dumb that we have to talk about. <laughs> so I feel like this also leads us to have to highlight the fact that, um, Kate and I have had this shift in our relationship recently. Um, we posted about it that um, I will be shifting in my place in her world from being her therapist. That role will be, be played by someone else. Um, and I will now be Kate's collaborator and friend and, I don't know, I want to say Person. partner in crime, but that's probably not the right thing to say. <laughs> don't cut that. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, my person. Your person. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that shift has been important as we move further into um, this more public facing world. I mean, when we started the podcast a year ago, we did not even begin to think that it could become what it has become. And but it has. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to do that um, has been a thing. But this shift, I don't know, it's hard because, you know, we've said many times um, for a survivor to really get help and get out, they need someone to show up all the way. Mm -hmm. And um, a therapist is not supposed to be that person, right? There are all these ethical boundaries that are important for us to maintain. And that is to protect clients from relationships that do them more harm than good. And there's a purpose in that. Um, but as the therapist, it's a very messy place to be to know that the person you're trying to care for needs more than those boundaries will allow. Um, but you're not supposed to provide for that. 
but then who is? Mm -hmm. So it could be somebody out in the world, but you know, you've had that experience before and people have come and tried to show up, but they lacked the training and the, the background information to be able to do that well. Right. And so that doesn't end up going the way that it needs to go. Yeah. We keep saying it, the people who are capable of really stepping into this space are not supposed to. And the people who are supposed to are maybe ill-equipped. Um, right. And that's a really tough place to be. So, um, so I am shifting to be able to be the person who can step into this space differently so that I can be the person who goes to the dentist with Kate. Mm-hmm. because who better to understand what's being set off for her than me, because I've walked this with her. Right. Um, I also think that the difference here than other maybe traumatic things is that um, a lot of people don't want, and not that I do either, <laughs> but a lot of people, what they share in therapy mm-hmm. is extremely confidential. They don't want that out in the world. But for a survivor like me, sometimes I need someone to share my history with the dentist because Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to. It's very hard for me to advocate for myself. I can advocate for anybody else all day, every day. But it's very hard for me to not put on the fake church me and be like, I'm good, even though I'm actually dying inside. Um, But who else knows that information, right? Um, So And who who else is tuned in to be able to see it? The subtle shift yeah. when it's really not okay, but you're saying it's okay. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it's complicated and mm-hmm. kind of, uh, I don't know, emotionally we're walking through that, but I guess we're sharing that with people because we do want you to realize that the shift is happening. Um, but it is not a shift of me stepping back. It's a shift of me stepping into a different domain with Kate. Um, and so, um, I don't, I guess I, I think we want to make sure people don't misunderstand to think that you won't be getting the help that you need or that I'm like pulling back from things. Yeah. Quite the opposite, really. Yeah. Coming closer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. So that is that episode. Stay tuned. <laughs> uh, yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> If you or someone you know is stuck in a trafficking situation and needs help, please reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline by calling 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP, H-E-L-P, to 233-733.